Welcome to Plastisphere, the podcast on plastics, people, and the planet. My name is Anja Krieger. You've probably heard of bioplastics, these new kinds of plastics that are marketed as environmentally friendly. If you've been following my show, you might know the episode in which I tried to better understand this group of materials and the confusion around it. I'm making a plastic podcast, and this episode is on bioplastics. And I wanted to find out what people think about bioplastics. I think bioplastic is a good way to decrease the pollution in our world today. But I don't know if the price is like affordable. Unfortunately, in this world we live in, you can't get away from plastic. And so anything that makes it biodegradable is a much better solution. Bio-based and biodegradable? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I know too much of the difference between those. I don't know, I guess I'm still skeptical about biodegradable plastic. Anything that's plastic to me, I'm still thinking this is still nearly impossible. I mean, and people also have to do the right things with it. That, to me, I think is the biggest limitation. But, you know, if I have a choice between biodegradable plastic and normal plastic, I'll, you know, still take, take their word for it and try it out. After speaking to several experts from science, industry and NGOs, I came away with the conclusion that bioplastics have their own issues and that there won't be a silver bullet for solving plastic pollution. That was five years ago. Since then, things have developed, and I've repeatedly heard about one material in specific that people put a lot of hope in, PHA, short for polyhydroxyalkanoates, another one of those hard-to-pronounce materials. The interesting thing is that PHAs are made by bacteria, but I only covered them shortly in my previous episode. Now, the people over at the Indisposable podcast just posted an episode that looks at this in greater detail. If you don't know their podcast yet, do check it out. The Indisposable podcast is produced by Upstream, a change agency in the US that works on the transition from the throwaway economy to one that is regenerative, circular and equitable. They had Lisa Erdl on the show, who works for Five Gyres. Five Gyres is the NGO from California that has been leading the plastic discussion since the very beginning. It was their founders who first sampled all five ocean gyres for plastic pollution. Lisa shares their latest research with Upstream's host, Brooking Gatewood. They tested biodegradable products in different environments, from a desert to the sea. Enjoy listening. Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Calling all reuse businesses, community groups, and activists. The Reusees returns this May, and applications are now open. Once again, we'll be presenting the annual Reuse Awards live at Green Biz's Circularity 24 conference in Chicago. The Reusees champions the heroes making reuse a reality for people across the US and Canada by uplifting their stories and providing them with meaningful support. This year, we're excited to offer more awards and bigger prizes. There will now be three Activist of the Year winners, as well as three Community of the Year winners, who will each receive a $2,500 award to support their work. And all Most Innovative Reuse Company finalists will all receive an all-access pass to attend and participate in Circularity 24. Applications are open from now through February 29th. Submit your online application today, or share your favorite reuse activist, community group, or business at thereusees.org. 
That's T-H-E-R-E-U-S-I-E-S dot org. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year. Today I'm talking with Dr. Lisa Ertl, Director of Science and Innovation at the Five Gyres Institute and a lead author of Five Gyres' recently released Better Alternatives 3.0 report. As a biologist and ecotoxicologist, Lisa's research investigates the sources, fate, and effects of microfibers on the environment. She has both published in leading scientific journals and works with policymakers and brands to help vet new technologies for reducing plastic pollution in our materials. Today, she's going to help us sort through what the latest science can tell us about the environmental impacts of different plastic substitutes. And so we'll jump right in. And Lisa, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a couple of key terms that uh, some of our listeners might have these distinctions and some might not. So uh, one of the ones I know that shows up in your report is bio-based versus biodegradable plastic materials. So let's kick off with talking about the difference between those and any other terms we want to clarify before we jump into the report. I'm so glad you're kicking it off with definitions because they're really important. There's a lot of greenwashing and and confusion around these different definitions. Um, There are bio-based materials, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all biodegradable. Um, Bio-based just means that it's produced from renewable biomasses can be things like cornstarch and sawdust and food waste. but when they're, they're formed, they can turn into all different types of polymers. Some of those can be biodegradable, meaning that they'll break down, and others are a lot more stable in the environment um, and are more similar to traditional fossil fuel-based plastics. So essentially, the, the chemical structure can be made almost the same. But if it's biodegradable... Um, it can be consumed by microorganisms, um, and the, the carbon is really returned to its, its natural state. Um, where there's also a bit of confusion around biodegradable is biodegradable, but where? Something might be technically biodegradable, but only in very specific conditions. So there's, there's a lot of nuance around, uh, around bioplastics and, and biodegradable materials. Okay. And that is that piece you're talking about, about do things really degrade or not, is a big part of what this BA, as in Better Alternatives, 3.0 report is all about. So um, will you walk us through some of the key findings and the methods you guys use to, to get to the key findings? We looked at 22 different products and packaging, um, including bioplastics and also traditional fossil fuel-based plastics, and we put them in six different environments, a desert in California, the ocean in California, a cold marine environment in Maine, a a forest in Maine, and in the Everglades, um, and in the ocean in, in in Florida. So we had a big range of different environmental conditions um, in the U.S. We did this because um, a lot of these these products um, and packaging have claims of, of biodegradation, 
But as we know, there's a lot of differences in terms of temperature and microbial communities. We looked at how these 22 different items um, essentially fragmented and broke down over um, nearly a year and a half. So we, we had these products in different mesh bags and we put them in the environment and we check on them in regular intervals and, and weigh them and photograph them and see um, what was really, really happening to these materials so we can have... Um, decisions around biodegradable and bioplastics um, be made um, based on based on science and real and real findings and seeing how they perform in the environment to really vet some of these new material innovations. Yeah. And I know that um, for those who've been in the movement for a long time, they might remember the original ban list, as, as we call the 1.0 version of this report. And then there was another list put out. I think that first one was in 2016. Then a couple years later, there was a ban list 2.0. And now um, this report is your third in this series. It's coming four or five years after the last one. So how does this connect with the work that you guys were doing in the prior reports? And is there anything that's distinct or new in what's uh, in the 3.0 report? In the prior studies that we did, we looked at marine and terrestrial environments. We didn't have as much of a range, but when we tested different um, different materials, one thing that really stood out to us was how quickly um, PHA broke down. Um, this was, as you mentioned, years ago. So there was very few uh, items that were, were made out of PHA. So for our listeners who aren't as familiar, what does PHA stand for? What does that term mean in the, in the world of bioplastics? PHA is a biomaterial that's synthesized by um, bacteria. So it's a, it's a polymer that's naturally occurring in the environment, but it can also be synthesized. So it's, this is one of the, the bioplastics that are being considered for, um, for these you know, novel products and packaging. And when we did our study years ago, we had one PHA item. It was a PHA beach toy, and it, and it degraded so much quicker than the other bioplastics that we tested. So we looked at this and said, you know, is this a promising material? Um, and it was really the, um, the the thing that inspired us to do this larger study and, and, and look at some more of these um, alternative polymers, these new things that are starting to, to come on the market more, um, Things like PHA and, and other, other biomaterials like PHB. So we tested a range of, of, of different plastic types um, with some of these, these novel bioplastics that are starting to, to come onto the market more and more. Got it. So some of the, the materials that you're studying here are relatively new in the, in the ongoing field of uh, innovation, if you will, around trying to create alternatives to plastic and you guys are testing how uh, helpful versus potentially harmful are some of these new alternatives. Exactly. These new alternatives are, you know, continuing to to enter the market and we wanted to make sure that there is adequate testing to understand what happens to these different items if they if they do um, get into the environment. What what happens to them? How do they break down? What kind of persistence do they have? Um, and another question: What are ultimately the effects? 
So I know that the the deepest answer is to invite listeners to go read the report for themselves, but can you give us sort of the executive summary version of what some of your your big findings were about these different materials and which are which are better than others to consider as alternatives to plastic? Yeah. A lot of the thin films that we tested, it was really surprising to us how quickly they actually broke down. Um, the environment matters a great deal. Uh, in the warm, wet environments in Florida, for example, things things broke down much, much more quickly than in the cold waters of, of Maine or, or even coastal California, where the water is relatively cooler. Um And the polymer matters too. Um, PHA and PHB, some of these novel biomaterials started fragmenting much more quickly than than PLA, polylactic acid, which is one of these older biomaterials that listeners may be more familiar with um, since it is a bioplastic that's been around um, for so much longer. Um, But we really found a lot of of differences based on, on... the, the polymer type, um, the type of environment that these items were in, and, and how products are designed. Um, a, a biomaterial that is still quite thick, um, something like a fork, um, degrades at similar timeframes to, to something that is made from cellulose, something like bamboo or paper. Um, so when, when we're designing these, these new items, um, the, the way that they're constructed really matters. And for example, the, the, the fork that we tested, that was, that was PHA, the, the prongs of the forks started fragmenting quite quickly, but then the handle of the fork, which was much thicker, um, persisted similarly to the, the bamboo fork that we tested as a, as a, as a control. So, um, when, um, when, Designers are starting to to make these these single use items where there's a need for it. I don't think that we need to have these um, bioplastics for single use packaging in every case. But where we do have them, the design matters. And having more spaces, um, having something like a honeycomb structure, could help microbes um, access this material and, and and break it down much more quickly. So the the thickness matters too. And something I know that um, a sort of another buzzword, if you will, that's in the report is this idea of feedstocks. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about like, what are feedstock materials and which ones are more promising or less? Yeah, there's a range of different feedstocks for bioplastics. Um, one feedstock that's really well known um, for for PLA, polylactic acid, um, is this um is farming, industrial farming, um, bio, bio feedstocks. So this is things like corn and, and wheat, um, and it can be agricultural waste as well. If we do a one-to-one replacement of all single-use plastics and replace them with bioplastics, there's a, there's a big need for, for agricultural land to, to sort to feed that beast. Um, but there's, you know, other feedstocks too that are really promising and, and novel and, and interesting. Um, we've seen uh, seaweed be used to make thin films. Um, growing seaweed in some cases can store carbon and help um, encourage 
um, biodiversity in, in areas is, uh, when it's done properly and isn't harvested intensively. Um, and other novel feedstocks like companies that are, are looking to use waste methane from wastewater treatment plants and capture that methane and turn it into a biomaterial through microbes and, and using that those sugars as a, as a food source. So the, the feedstocks really matter. Um, there are there have been calls for challenges of what happens if we have these big industrial farms used for feedstock, whether it's sugar cane or corn, um, and if we are just replacing all of our conventional plastics with bioplastics. We want to make sure we're not not putting undue pressure on agricultural systems, for example. Mm. Sounds like a similar problem that came up when ethanol came onto the market as an alternative to gasoline. And, and suddenly we had a, a major land management problem with the uh, all the land that was converted to cropland and and that's a ecological issue for for wild for habitat protection right exactly yeah um so so there's the input side and the piece you just shared about uh the possible impacts and of the different inputs and some of the more promising ones like the seaweed example that you gave and then there's sort of i don't know if you would call this the output side but thinking about infrastructure needs for bioplastics i know we talk a lot on this show about how reuse requires new infrastructure and um, it sounds like bioplastics do as well when it comes to appropriate composting to actually get these things to degrade. So um, I'm curious for your take on, you know, what are some of the low-hanging fruit this version might make sense examples versus, you know, examples where the infrastructure needs are so high that we might as well focus on reuse infrastructure instead. I'd love to get your sense of the landscape in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, you know, reuse and, and refill requires redesigning our systems and having having the right infrastructure to handle it. And 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 refill and reuse are are a great um, thing to strive for. But as we've seen, um, they can't work for everything or can't work for everything right now. We see certain cases um, where there aren't great systems for refill and reuse, thinking about um, thin film packaging for meats and cheeses. We, in a lot of cases, we don't have great systems for that yet. Um, mm-hmm. And some of these, um, some of these single use um, might be, might be needed now. Um, and to handle them properly, you know, we'd, we'd want to see a system where these, these materials that can biodegrade um, and can biodegrade in, in composting systems actually enter those composting systems. We, we lack a lot of composting infrastructure in the, in the U.S. Um, less than 10% of food scraps are composted. Um, and there's, there's a real need to, to up the amount of municipal composting infrastructure and to do the testing to see how these items go through various composting systems um, and see how they really break break down and degrade. We were looking at what happens with these items in the environment and to take these similar items and, and put them through the ringer and through a composting system, um, I think is a really important next step because we know that some items don't break down in composting systems, but the ones that broke down quickly in, in our study and environmental conditions, which are typically 
not as easy to break down as, as these um, industrial composters or, or other types of composting systems. I think a low-hanging fruit is, is increasing the amount of composting we have um, and also educating consumers and composters about what items um, can go through the composting systems and which ones should be avoided. And then in terms of, um, I'm hearing from you that a big part of the focus of this report is for cases where reuse systems aren't an option, like the the thin film on meat packaging is, is a really good example of that. What are your thoughts about th- things like the dis- single-use foodware, which is one that a lot of the movement is focusing on shifting toward reuse? If you were to sort of your best sense of the cost benefit overall of the changes required to make, you know, the bamboo forks viable versus the changes required to just switch to reuse systems, do you see one as um, more the, the easier next step than the other or that they should be happening in parallel? Just curious for your bird's eye view on on that issue that we're always debating in this space with the latest science that you're bringing to the table. I think there's a lot of great innovations for foodware, for refill and reuse. We have a lot of available alternatives um, where we can really move away from from single use. Um, single use foodware, even if it's bamboo, um, can have these these negative impacts. We've, we've seen inputs of of perfluorinated chemicals to give waterproofness. Um, and there, there can be a lot of confusion of what, what type of material um, it's really made of. Something like a, like a blue or a red straw is likely really hard to um, distinguish for composters from conventional um, plastics in a composting system. And we have a lot of um, reusables for, for, those, for those anyway. Um, where it could work are for, for closed, um, closed systems, thinking about um, maybe uh, compounds where, where there um, is a cafeteria and um, there's, a, there's composting on site and everything is sort of staying within the same, the same system or for large events where where refill and reuse has has proven challenging because of the cost um, because of the loss and um, I, I could envision that that single-use foodware could be used in, in those types of cases um, but in a lot of in a, in a lot of examples you know we, we come across really great options for a refill and reuse and that should really be be prioritized hmm. And then one more question for you about report findings. Um, which findings did you find particularly surprising that you weren't expecting something to degrade as well or as poorly or any other kinds of surprises that might be interesting for our listeners to know about? I was surprised that some of these biomaterials like PHA and PHB degraded in similar timeframes to these natural cellulosics. So um, the, the PHA fork, for example, it degraded even um, more quickly than the bamboo fork that we tested. And that was surprising to me. And so when we're, we're, we're thinking about these, um, these alternatives, these alternative materials, you know, not necessarily for cutlery, we, we, see, um, we see a lot of innovation in that space where, where um, there's single-use foodware being developed from these novel materials, so they were easy, easy to test. Um, but I was surprised that it 
that was so was so quick and really really rivaled these um, these natural materials like bamboo that we we consider as biodegradable and it was it was interesting to me to see that in some cases the the pha even surpassed how the the bamboo um, performed in the environment so that was a that was a real kind of eye opener for me um, but i'd like to see um, more alternative materials and other sectors of society not just single use foodware it's where you've seen a, a, a lot of um, a lot of new developments and innovation um, but thinking about what are the other sectors of society that could benefit from these materials in, in, in cases where there's loss to the environment and there there there's a real need for materials that will eventually break down um, whether it's you know fishing gear crab traps lobster traps um, mm-hmm ropes and buoys that 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 get lost um sometimes intentionally but often unintentionally um lost to the environment or cases where there's there's you know car tire dust that's that's shedding from from the roads can can some of those synthetic polymers be replaced um with biomaterials that will break down um i think there's a really long long list and a need for alternative materials because we see so many emissions to the environment and finding these these different areas where we we know that there is is loss to the environment and um, where we don't have good options for for capture or for more durable materials um, could these these bioplastics be you know be an alternative? Yeah, and I it seems um, the way that your report is set up it's it's visually very easy to go through and I also had the similar impression uh, that you spoke to of PHA doing surprisingly well uh, across a number of materials in this. And as an example of a new material that might be, um, you know, a helpful innovation in our transition to a more reuse-based economy. So we've touched on a bunch of misconceptions and some of the key findings here. Um, And, you know, our listeners are always interested in how they can get involved to uh, help with these issues. So what are some of your uh, takeaways for our listeners in terms of how to be involved in addressing misconceptions and communicating about this and taking action? Yeah, I think that consumers should demand disclosure of what's going into their materials. We know that Plastics are a really complex mixture of, there can be hundreds of polymers, thousands of additives, and, and often we don't know what's, what's going into it. So I think, I think um, listeners can, can demand of policymakers and, and the manufacturers to, to really know what is going into these, um, into these materials so they can make more informed um, decisions. Um, something that um, is is PHA? Is it is it pure PHA? Has it been mixed with synthetic colorants or copolymers to give um, these plastics different properties? Are there additives in there? Um, many additives that are that are added to plastics, as your listeners know, um, can have these these negative effects. They're persistent in the environment or show toxicity. And and even these bioplastic polymers, um, even if the 
the polymers themselves are non-toxic. They can still have additives and, and non-degradable plastics and, and still cause potential harm. So I think that um, as we, in some cases, transition away from fossil fuel-based plastics to these bioplastics, we, we need to demand these answers and, and have transparency around what's going into these materials to make sure that that they don't cause um, don't cause harm. Um, we've taken a subset of these um, of these samples that we we looked at in the study of the twenty two products and are testing for various additives just so we have more information on you know what's actually going into these products and packaging um, and can can help understand what the effects are as these materials break down. We we don't want to see a scenario where there are these persistent. Um, components that that can that can cause cause toxicity, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not covered as much in this report. Yeah, it's 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 really an, a next step for for a deeper a deeper dive, um, and and we're starting to to look at that. So you can stay tuned for for our next next work on on what happened, um, what we're finding with these materials. Awesome. So that's the next step that you all are taking. And any other next steps our listeners might be able to take? So demanding accountability from brands um, in terms of what is in their products and materials. Anything else? I, th- I think making, you know, advocating for, for systems that really work. So if we're, we're going to shift towards bioplastics, um, demanding that we have um, proper end-of-life um, for these materials, you know, including mm-hmm. sorting and the right infrastructure. And um, a lot of these decisions are being made by policymakers. So so getting getting involved, voting, looking for advocacy alerts um, that we share in Five Gyres and, and through the coalitions that we're a part of, and making sure that there's there's the right the right system that's needed for some of these novel materials because they show promise, but um, they're they're really um, important to the transition for for reusables, but require some some real you know truth in advertising and the right the right systems, the right infrastructure to to handle them. Awesome. Anything I haven't asked you that you were hoping we would talk about? Just thanks so much for the for the time and and stay tuned for our next research on these bioplastics. It's a it's a really interesting um, area of research. There's a lot of innovation, but this new innovation requires scientific vetting before it's adopted um, in a really widespread way. So so we hope to see more science to help inform help inform decisions so decisions can be based on facts. Awesome. And, um, you know, I we didn't even at the beginning talk too much about who Five Gyres is, which was a assumption on my part that most listeners know. But let's do a quick, so who, how, what does it mean to follow Five Gyres' work beyond? I know you guys do science, but you do a lot more. So five, the number five, not uh, spelled out, org is your website. And is there anything else you want to tell us about your organization and um, the best ways for people to follow your work before we close out? Yeah, best way to follow our work is um, through social media. We're on Instagram and X and to follow our, our science that we, we publish. We're a, a small but mighty science-based organization that really helps empower action against the global health crisis of plastic pollution. Um, I'm a scientist and I do science, but we also share what we do and, and what's happening in the scientific community through education and advocacy. 
Um, and we're, a lot of our work is really moving upstream. We, we started our work in the oceans to answer questions about plastic in the, the five subtropical gyres in the oceans. And, and we're now going upstream and, and vetting innovations, um, finding plastic pollution closer to the source to, to help inform solutions. Yeah. And I, we've also had members of your team come and join us to talk about some of the coalition work you guys are involved in with Reusable LA and the Austin Reuse Coalition, Clean Seas, um, and others. So Five Jars is, has long been a very central player in the, in the U.S. Uh, movement against plastic pollution. So it's always a treat to have you guys on the show. Uh, thank you so much, Lisa, for your time both speaking to me today. And I know you put in a lot of hard work into this report. So really appreciate your efforts so that we all have this really good information and looking forward to hearing the next layer of research that comes out. Thanks so much. It's like an onion. There's always more to learn. Absolutely. <laughs> the life of a scientist. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Lisa, and have a good one. Thank yeah. you. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review. Talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.